This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Today, Dave and I are having a conversation with Gary Borger about fly fishing in Wisconsin. So grateful to have you here again today, Gary, on Two Guys in a River. Recently, uh, Gary was named one of the top seven most influential fly fishers of the last 50 years by Canada's Fly Fusion magazine. I think that says it all. It really does, and uh, Gary's fished all over the world. I know this because every time I email him, he replies from New Zealand or Germany (laughs) or someplace like that. But Gary makes his home in Wisconsin where he has lived and fly fished for years. And that's what we want to talk about with Gary in today's podcast. Uh, Gary, thank you for joining us again. Good to be back again. Good to have you back. A number of our listeners live in the upper Midwest, and uh, Dave and I, after living for years in the western part of the U.S., are both in the Chicago area. And uh, one of the closest places to fly fish for trout and salmon is in Wisconsin. And so we would like to talk uh, a little bit about fishing in the, the upper Midwest, specifically Wisconsin, but we can, we can broaden the borders a little bit. So Gary, let me ask you, let me start by asking you to describe what is so different about fly fishing for trout in Wisconsin than, than it is on the big rivers of the West, like the Bighorn or the Yellowstone or the Missouri. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the details, but in general, what, what is a fly fisher who has perhaps learned to fish in Wyoming or Montana, need to know about fishing in Wisconsin? Uh, number one, more trees. So, <laughs> I found that out the hard way. Yes. <laughs> especially if you're fishing in the northern part of the state. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, well, every part of the world has different uh, stream characteristics, different uh, fauna and flora characteristics uh, relative to the watershed that you're trying to fish. And so what we need to do as fly fishers, aside from the ability to read waters, is we need to think about uh, the kinds of insects that are going to be available to us because that's going to dictate the kind of flies we potentially might use or the other food, food organisms that might be in the rivers. Also, the size of the rivers and also their carrying capacity for trout. Some rivers can carry more trout than other rivers. A big river can carry more trout than a small river. A spring creek can carry more trout than a a more acid uh, freestone river. So we have to consider all those things when we're talking about fly fishing. Most people that fish the West or think about fishing the West think about lots of big fish. And it's true that there are more fish in the West and probably more big fish simply because there are fewer people fishing those rivers because the population densities are less out there. And also because the rivers are a lot bigger, they have more ability to carry more fish. And as a consequence, there are more fish. And fishing there, you have more opportunities to catch fish. If you're fishing a river that's, uh, say, the the Bighorn or uh, like Canada's Bow, for example, these are major rivers. They can flow at... uh, at 3,300 cubic feet per second, whereas a trout stream in Wisconsin may be flowing at 50 cubic feet a second. So much larger volumes of water flowing, therefore much more carrying capacity, and therefore, you know, a more efficient potential for the fly fisher who's there. One of the places I've fished for years have, has been the Driftless in southwestern Wisconsin. 
And the area is loaded with spring creeks. We love the Timber Coulee area uh, over there near La Crosse. Uh, what makes spring creeks unique, at least for me, harder to fly fish? Well, let's define spring creeks and freestones. So first of all, we have an idea of what we're discussing. Freestone streams are those which have their major watershed on the surface of the land. As a consequence, they're very subject to flood. During the flood, the stones in the bottom of the river shift and move around, therefore the term freestone. They're free to roll and free to move. Spring creeks, on the other hand, have their watersheds underground. Basically, they occur in areas where there are limestones, a chalk, dolomite, and other sort of rocks related to limestone. Rainwater it has a pH of about 5.5, that is, it's slightly on the acid side. So as it percolates down through the limestone, it actually dissolves the limestone and creates underground rivers. If these happen to flow out at the base of a mountain or some other place, but after, if they actually happen to flow out, then they form what we call a spring creek because it's like a giant spring, basically. Because their major watershed is underground, they tend to be very uniform in temperature, basically 54 to 55 degrees at the springhead, and unless they flow a long ways through very, very warm country, they're going to basically maintain that temperature. And because the major watershed is underground, they generally tend to have very uniform flows. So you tend to have uniform flow, uniform temperature, year-round in a spring creek, whereas in a freestone, you have wildly swinging temperatures and you can have wildly swinging uh, water depths because of floods and or drought and other kinds of things. So there's a great difference in the, in the watershed itself and therefore in the production of the stream itself, spring creek versus freestone. Now, let me just talk a little bit about the fishing in, in spring creeks and the reason why many people find spring creeks either very exciting to fish or really, really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because spring creeks demand a different kind of attitude on the angler, a different kind of um, view of the equipment that they're using, a different way of approaching the river, completely different than fishing freestones. And if you're used to fishing freestones and the ability to wade up and down the river and move around freely and, and cast wherever you want to cast and you get a hatch at a certain time of day and maybe it's not a real long hatch and you can fish lots of nymphs and streamers and all that kind of stuff. When you get to a spring creek, you're going to find out, whoa, this is a completely different animal. Because the flows are very uniform, you typically don't have the up and down that you would get in regular rivers. And so in the summertime, you don't get those, those, uh, big rocky beaches you can walk on. Typically, it's, it is what it is, and typically they're not really big. Now, in the western United States, we have rivers like the Bighorn, and we have the Bow, and we have the San Juan, and many, many others, but these are specialized spring creeks because they're really tailwaters. In the sense of a spring creek of having its uh, watershed underground, a tailwater has its watershed basically under a giant lake formed by a dam. And so they tend to be rather uniform in their flow and rather uniform in their temperatures, like spring creeks. Huh. So when you talk about fishing tailwaters and spring creeks, very often you're talking about using the same kind of techniques. Well, let's just back up just a second and think about this for a minute. Gee, I have a situation where I have, I have very uniform flow, very uniform temperature, therefore I'm going to have very uniform plant growth in there, probably very uniform hatches, 
more insects than I would have in a river that keeps getting flooded all the time. Now I've got a situation that's ideal for the trout. Clear water. He can see everything that's going on. There's plenty of food. Why should he take your fly, right? Right, <laughs> well, exactly. Now, all right. now we know why you're having so much <laughs> now trouble. Now we know you're having so much right. trouble. Why are you having trouble? <laughs> yeah. But what it really means is that the fish have a little bit more opportunity usually to spend time looking at your fly. And they have a little more opportunity to really pay close attention to what's happening in terms of the hatches and so on. Uh, spring creeks like uh, oh, the Little Lehigh in Allentown, Pennsylvania, for example, midge hatches every single day of the year, 365 days a year. As long as there's wow. open water, their midges will be hatching. And they're small midges. They're size 20s to 24s, and they oh. hatch every single day. Well, if you're a trout and you're there with billions of midges floating by every single day, you're going to be eating lots of midges. And now you come from a spring creek where you've been fishing a size 10 a Hendrickson. I mean, a, from, a, from a freestone where you've been fishing a size 10 Hendrickson. And you now suddenly have to put on a size 22 midge and fish it right into the surface film. Completely different animal. Oh. So what it means is you have to refine your tackle. You have to refine your approach method. You have to refine your casting so that it's extremely accurate and you can put it fly right where it wants to go. And you have to refine basically your attitude to what's happening. You're not going to go there and rip out a million fish. You may have an opportunity to catch bigger ones and the opportunity to really work on fish that are very difficult to catch and more of a challenge to you. Many anglers like to fish spring creeks just for that purpose because they, the fish are more difficult to catch simply because they have much more food available to them and because they're going to be more selective to the flies that you present to them. All right. And if we were to go to the driftless, which, uh, by the way, we know it's not called that because you can't drift your fly in these rivers. Uh, well, tell, tell us what the meaning of, of, of that name means. What do they call it, the driftless? Well, Wisconsin, as many of the northern states, underwent glaciation, but that part mm -hmm. of Wisconsin did not. Right. So it's never been glaciated. So the, the terrain there is much different than it is in the rest of Wisconsin. If you look at Wisconsin, I mean, some people think of Wisconsin as this big flat state. No, it's rolling countryside. Yeah, it really is. And there are hills and, and valleys and so on. But the driftless area... The valleys are very steep because they've never been glaciated. Mm -hmm. They've just been carved by the rivers. And so you have lots of cliffs and you have high hills and uh, small streams in the, in the valleys, uh, lots of what we would call river bottom areas, much different kind of uh, topography than you would find in the rest of the state. And like I say, it's called driftless because the land never moved under glaciation. Okay. And if we're going there to fly fish, uh, what would you recommend somebody who's had it there? What would you say... Uh, yeah, here are a couple of things you need to do to be successful. First thing you need to do is, is have the right attitude. You're going there to fish spring creeks because most of the streams in the driftless area are, in fact, spring creeks. So you're going to have a more of a challenge on your hand than just going out to the river and flicking a fly and hoping that something takes your fly. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to pay attention to everything that's happening. You're going to spend more time hunting fish rather than just fishing the water. Hmm. It's very easy to cast over fish if you don't know they're there. And in the spring creek, the flow is often, not always, but often very smooth. Yeah. And as a consequence, you may not see a fish, throw your line on them, spook that fish, which runs upstream and spooks several more, yeah. which spooks several more, which spooks several more. And as a consequence, have a bad day simply because you insist on, on casting without worrying whether there's a fish there or not. The other thing you need to do in, in terms of casting, let's just mention that for a real quick second, is the concept of false casting. Let me point out to you that false casting is false fishing. <laughs> yeah. 
And false casting is basically a way to show other anglers that you know how to move the line back and forth through the air. It's not a way that's going to impress the fish. In fact, if it does anything, it'll spook fish. So you have to know how to handle your line to be able to dry the fly quickly using something like a C pickup, which allows you to dry the fly without having to do any false casting. You have to be able to place it carefully. You have to be down on your hands and knees crawling and watching and paying lots of attention to what's going on. If you're willing to do that, as I said before, it's more of a challenge than fishing, oftentimes than fishing freestones. But the challenge is part of the reason that we do it. Right. Absolutely. You talked about bigger fish in the spring creeks. Spring creeks, excuse me. I have to say, I've caught a lot of fish in the driftless area. I'm not sure I caught big fish. And one of the things that struck me about your book, Fishing the Film, was just, I think maybe it was in Reading Waters, this kind of basic notion that the bigger fish lie differently in the water than they do than do smaller fish. And how is that? Is that different at all in Spring Creeks? No, I know it's really the same. I, uh, when I do reading the water programs, I always tell people there's three biological drives that determine where fish are in the river and what they're doing in the river. And those three basic biological drives are first of all self-preservation, second one getting something to eat, and the third one is to reproduce. And when we do it as a program, we say it this way. Save your butt, feel your gut, make kids. So that's, that's three basic biological drives for everybody. That's good. That's good. For Same everybody. Basic Fish, messaging. bacteria, humans, doesn't matter. Same three things. Number one is always save your butt. Big fish are simply the biggest chickens in the pool. That's why they got to be big. Anything out of the ordinary, anything out of the ordinary, meant only one thing to them. Get back under the bank, get under the weeds, you know, go someplace, hide. When you look at fly fishing in the eastern United States, you'll notice that many more big trout, brown trout especially, are caught at night than they are during the daytime. Why? Because at night, you're not as visible, the fish aren't as afraid. During the daytime, you come walking down the river, there's a 25-inch brown laying there. He knows you're in the river. You flick your false cast back and forth 27 times before you put your fly in the water. He <laughs> sees that. He knows. He's not going to be fussing around with you. He's back under the bank waiting. So Ellen Spring Creeks, that's doubly so because the water is usually cleaner. It's therefore clearer, usually flatter flowing, therefore easier for the fish to see you and also to hear you stomping up and down along the riverbank. You really have to pay attention to everything that you're doing as an angler. A spring creek is basically, uh, you know, the PhD place. I mean, people yeah. call the fish in spring creeks PhD fish. Well, mm -hmm. they don't really go to school and get PhDs, but they're just able to detect you so much better there than they are in freestones, sure. especially freestones where there's a lot of riffles and so on. As a consequence, you just have to really pay attention to everything that you're doing. Yeah. Hmm. What about some of the tributaries of the Great Lakes? I've, I've had a little bit of success in the fall catching salmon in the Milwaukee River. I mean, really, not that far from downtown Milwaukee. And, and I've just used some of the big, bright streamers. But what would you say to somebody who's thinking about fishing the Milwaukee or the Root or, or some of those tributaries? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting segue from Spring Creeks yeah. because... You see big fish in the river. Oh, look at all those big guys. And you wade right out there in the middle of them, spook every one of them. Where are they going to go? <laughs> they're not going to go back to the lake, but they're not going to take your fly either. So the same thing applies there. Be careful. Be quiet. Stalk the fish. Hunt them. Mm -hmm. Try not to show yourself any more than necessary. Mm -hmm. And typically when I'm fishing for those big fall run salmon and brown trout and even occasionally some steelhead that come in, 
one of the first things I want to do is make sure I'm not wearing any bright colored clothing. I try to keep myself, you know, off the horizon line. Sometimes you can use bright streamers. Sometimes black ones work better. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I catch fish on egg flies, dead drifting them and bouncing them on the bottom just like they were nymphs. Mm. Just because a fish is big and laying in a river and not going to leave doesn't mean it's going to take your fly. <laughs> and, I mean, Tragically. I see, it, I see it every fall, time and time and time again. People wading up and down the river, spook the whole river. The fish are all spooked, and then they keep casting to them and casting them. Eventually, they'll snag them on the side or something. But the fish aren't going to take the fly. They're not going to take it any more than a, than a yeah. big trout in a spring creek would if you spooked it. Yeah. So in terms of gear, would you have a different rod length for spring creeks here in the Driftless versus say, you know, in, your, in the West, obviously, you, you know, in the West, maybe a nine foot six, if you're fishing some of those bigger rivers, I don't know what, what you'd recommend. Would you recommend a different setup? Well, if you're talking about fishing spring creeks, you're always talking about refinement of tackle. Not necessarily lighter weight lines, although that does help sometimes. Um, Always use the lightest line and heaviest tippet that you possibly can. Why? Because as the fish, as you're fighting the fish, it's dragging that line around through the water. So the thinner the diameter of the line, the less line drag there will be when you're fighting the fish. Hmm. Now in the West, that might mean fishing a spring creek, you might have to use a six weight because of the wind. Right. Uh, in the driftless area, you might be able to get by with a four. If you're just doing all around kind of stuff, a 905 works just fine, and I've used them many times in the driftless area. Mm -hmm. But the idea is longer leaders, finer leaders. One thing that many people have difficulty with is going down to leaders that are 6X or 7X and trying to hook a big fish and land it because they have no real concept about how to fight a fish. They just think that they just have to put the rod straight up in the air and hold it and let the fish do whatever it's going to do. Of course, what it's going to do is tangle you up on everything it possibly yeah, can yeah. and break you off. Exactly. You know? So like I say, it's a refinement of everything that you are as a fly fisher, your ability to cast, your ability to fight the fish, your ability to, to get the fly on the water, so on and so on. Right. It's all important. It seems like the role of waders here is different, too. I have to laugh. Sometimes we've been in the driftless, Dave and I have, on 80-degree days, and here's a guy with chest waders, and the only places they need you know, to wade, that it's ankle-deep water, and I think they've got to be hot. They've got to be sweating to death. Yeah, a lot of times when we fish spring creeks, we just wear a wading boots and no waders at all yeah, because yeah. you may only use them to, to cross the stream exactly. or to stand along the edge so you can get a little bit of better casting. Right. But to wade deeply in the spring creeks is uh, not good unless it's so big there's no possible way that you can reach across right. it with the fly. Right, the fish. Yep. So, yeah, just a good pair of nylon pants and uh, wading yep. boots. Now, we're not expecting you to give away any secrets, but outside of the Driftless and the tributaries, are there other regions and in Wisconsin or even some of the surrounding states in the upper Midwest that somebody, say, who lives in the Chicago area might explore that's within a day's drive? Uh, southwestern or southeastern Minnesota is basically the same as southwestern Wisconsin. Okay. So, and, and also, then we're talking about northeastern Iowa. Right. That whole area is a driftless area, yeah. and it's all spring creeks, and it's all uh, limestone and dolomite. Okay. I remember so, fishing that as a kid. I think at that time they might have stocked some of that, but I'm assuming they don't anymore. Some places they stock a little bit, uh, but many of the places are just wild trout streams. Okay. So here's a final question. You talked about this refinement that, that needs to happen as you fish spring creeks, and one is this mindset. What's the singular mindset that a fly fisher must have for the spring creek. Mm. creek. 
I think probably um, recognizing that you're not going to catch tons of fish, that it's going to be a challenge, but that if you really take your time and pay attention to everything that you're doing, you can be successful. And that's, like, like I say, that's part of the challenge of it, is the ability to really look at what has to be done and then doing it. Rather than just grabbing your seven weight and going out there with a 2X leader and whipping a big fly around, hoping that something takes it, you may have to go down to a four weight line. You may have to use a 15 foot leader. You may have to end, you know, end up in six or seven X. And when you hook a fish, you better understand how to play it and you better be able to do it well. And that brings up another good uh, question. You've, you've written a number of books and Dave mentioned uh, he's been influenced by uh, reading the waters and fishing the film, and I think one of my favorites that you did was the angler's predator. Uh, what what would you recommend for aspiring fly fishers? Maybe to read first. I, I know you want them to read the whole series, of course, and yeah. buy them too. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But any that, where, where would you tell them to start? Well, I think as in reading anything in in the sport, whether it's my books or whether it's in other people's mm-hmm. books, I think that. People need to look into those areas that most interest them in terms of the part of the sport that they really, at that particular time in their, their fishing career, really are most interested in. I've had people come to me and say, my gosh, I read that Reading the Water book, and I, I ne- just never knew all that stuff, and I've been fishing for 60 years. And other guys come and say, oh, well, yeah, that's really great, and I did this, and blah, 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 and so on. And they understood all that already, but then they saw the book on uh, the Angler's Predator and said, you know, I never really thought about that before. Mm. So what we need to do as, as anglers is we need to look at the sport as a whole, and we need to think about, gee, do I need to improve my casting? If I need to improve my casting, then I should get some DVDs and I should get some books and I should really, or go to a school and really spend some time working on my ability to get the fly there to do what it has to do. Do I really understand why these fish are feeding the way they are? Hmm, maybe I need to get a, a book on entomology and spend a little bit of time reading that. One of the things about fly fishing, as we mentioned earlier, is that there's so much in it that you can spend a whole lifetime learning and enjoying every little tiny aspect of it that's available out there. And once you learn one little part of it from from one experience, you can often apply that to other experiences that you've had. Mm. So this whole idea of problem solving, the whole idea of exploring is very important if the fly fisher wants to do more than just one thing. But then, as I mentioned before, I have a friend that just likes to fish dry flies. Maybe he wants to focus on just everything he can figure out about dry flies. Not only just the dry flies, but reading water and, and gee, you know, I never really tried fishing dry flies along the edges like that. Maybe I should try that more and so on and so on. Yeah. Well, Gary, it's been such a pleasure to have you on Two Guys in a River. Uh, thank you for uh, chatting with us, and uh, we hope we'll uh, get you back again. Thanks, Steve, and thanks, Dave, for inviting me back again. And if you'd like to find out more about Gary Borger and order some of the books that we've talked about, Go to his website, www.garyborger.com, G-A-R-Y-B-O-R-G-E-R. That's garyborger.com. If you'd like to share any tips for fly fishing in Wisconsin, or <laughs> tell Steve and I where you are actually catching fish, yes. uh, go to twoguysinariver.com. That's twoguysinariver.com, two with a numeral, and comment on this podcast link. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to our podcast via iTunes if you have an iPhone or Stitcher if you have a Droid. 
Thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Thank you.